Science Center podcast brought to you by the Work Science Center of the Georgia Institute of Technology. I'm your host, Keaton Fletcher. You can find more about the Work Science Center at our website, www.worksciencecenter.gatech.edu. In today's podcast, I speak with Richard Landers, John P. Campbell Distinguished Professor of Industrial Organizational Psychology at the University of Minnesota, and the brain behind Neoacademic, a blog covering a range of topics related to IO psychology. Richard and I discussed the future of IO psychology in the modern workforce and ways to integrate IO with the modern technological advances available to our field. Thanks, Richard, for talking with me today. Just to sort of start things off, would you mind like briefly sort of describing who you are, your research, and then also just kind of um, what neo-academic your blog is about? Sure. So I'm Richard. So I'm uh... Uh, on the faculty at University of uh, Minnesota, uh, actually uh, just started there, was at uh, Old Dominion University for, for about nine years. My, uh, my research broadly is on kind of the intersection point between what I would say modern IO psychology is and uh, technology, and uh, usually in the selection and training domains uh, where we work primarily. So that, that means we work with a pretty wide variety of specific technologies. So we've done some artificial intelligence work, some games and gamification work. Uh, we've looked at uh, social media. We've, I mean, basically anything that involves kind of the modern things coming out of uh, computer science and data science uh, and how those kind of interface with IO psychology. The blog is something I started a, a very long time ago. That was, uh, I can't remember when the first post was, but that was, it was probably 11, maybe 12 years ago, which was really more of an outlet in grad school at the time for just, I felt like I had a lot of thoughts that, that couldn't go anywhere. So I decided <laughs> to write them down in a blog. But it's kind of evolved uh, over the years into, I don't know if it's public facing exactly. It's, it's sort of targeted at a, a savvy IO audience for the most part, um, one who is interested in kind of understanding what the potential is for technology uh, in, in the field, because there's, there's certainly a lot of people who are interested but just don't know how to, how to dive in. So it's, it's kind of mostly targeted at that. Just generally with the, the goal of uh, increasing awareness and comfort and sort of demystifying some of the some of the technology that uh, we're kind of seeing everywhere now. There's so much in there where I feel like we can dig into. But first, I kind of want to dig into the notion of what it means to be an IO psychologist, especially mm. in the modern workforce. I think um, you and I can both agree that the scope and domain of our field has sort of expanded and changed. So how do you define IO psychology and sort of give me your feelings on what IO is, <laughs> how they're related? Sure. I mean, I think I think broadly, I would say IO psychology is is still the the science of workplace behavior, um, and it's really about understanding and applying kind of scientific methods to understanding how people behave in organizations. Uh, that's that's probably a much broader definition than most people come into it with. I, I, there's a bit of a legacy of you know obviously the psychology part of IO psychology. <laughs> Um, and people tend to kind of focus in on what they understand based on, you know, their training and their past experience and their past interests and so on. But I, I think that where, where IO is changing is that we've moved from sort of this this more compartmentalized application of psychology to employees mm-hmm. um, to a broader, more interdisciplinary kind of integration of, uh, you know, all the areas relevant to understanding workplace behavior. 
Uh, it's it's becoming increasingly important too, as you know, other fields are starting to now see IO psychology as an application area. It's something that's really surprised me uh, in talking to computer scientists, for example, who have absolutely no training whatsoever <laughs> in, in the workplace in, in particular. Will be you know just running and saying ah we can you know we can apply some algorithms and solve all your human resources problems. Uh, so with, without really starting to to dig into those other fields, we don't even understand why that's attractive you know to modern uh, management to why people in organizations would hear oh we're going to algorithm up your HR function like why why is that attractive why do they want that and in what ways is IO not competing that makes that attractive you know this is this is kind of historically our space talking about. Uh, selection and training and performance management and teamwork and leadership pipeline. I mean, all of that is, is tradition. That's like our wheelhouse. And yet we're seeing all these sort of technology purveyors start to really seriously threaten that. And we have we have a few options for what to do with it. But I don't know. We just ha- I feel like we haven't had a good field level conversation about what IO psychology should become at this point, where you have some holdouts that really stick to that. You know, it's psychology. That's all we do. And we just got to stick to our guns. Uh, versus uh, this other group, um, which I would be a part of, arguing that, you know, it's time to expand much further, um, that our old kind of I versus O debates, that's that's such small potatoes in this landscape that we're entering into, that we it's, it's really a time to kind of unify around a core vision of what I is and should be and, you know, promote that. You sort of like touched on um, how computer scientists are getting into our, our domain, mm. um, but also it seems like, at least judging from your work, you have some sort of collaboration with them. So where do you sort uh-huh. of see the greatest synergies and also the challenges associated with collaborating with people radically outside of our field? <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, that kind of gets at the heart of uh, interdisciplinary versus multidisciplinary versus transdisciplinary kind of work. Um, I think has, historically what IO psychologists have done, because it's it's not like interdisciplinary is a new thing and collaborating across these lines is is somehow uh, you know something we haven't done before. <laughs> But in the past, what would happen is individual researchers would see something in another literature that, you know, they were like, oh, that seems useful and cool. And then they would write up a JEP or PSYCH article where they pretended that they invented that thing. Uh, <laughs> and and then they would sell that as an IO concept. And we saw it we saw it really early on from personality and social psychology. Like so much is just repackaged, kind of contextualized social and personality psych, which is still useful. I mean, that's that's still good, but it's still fundamentally an interdisciplinary kind of enterprise. Uh, so when you work with computer science, it's the same sort of question. You, you have to ask yourself, are we going to integrate computer science or are we just going to you know, pick and choose the pieces of comp sci that seem interesting and useful and then pretend that we invented them? Now, what's happened, though, I think, is that comp sci is moving too fast for that to be realistic this time, whereas social psych, uh, because it's so similar to, to kind of the core IO psychology training, it's easy to see, oh, I see how this social psych concept fits in. I'm going to rename it and make a new theory or whatever. Uh, it's easy to do that, but in comp sci, the the knowledge space, the domain is so wide and so much faster moving that I I don't think it's possible anymore, and and that's why we're seeing so much. I don't know if it's resistance exactly, but that's why I think it's it's we've been slow to adopt it because in order to understand something like artificial intelligence and it integrated into your work, it's no longer a matter of oh I read an article and that sounded interesting. It's now a matter of I have to basically 
you know, get like a master's degree in this topic to have any idea what's even going on. And it doesn't necessarily have to be that bad, but until we have more, you know, translators who are dipping into comp sci and talking to these folks and really learning, really being interdisciplinary and not just multidisciplinary, that we're going to have, uh, you know, an easier time for IO psychologists in the broader sense who, who want to, you know, learn these skills. I, I've definitely experienced it personally working with comp sci people. I've worked with that with several different types. Uh, I think that's something that's probably not well known in the IO community. Um, types? Yeah, yeah. So I mean, comp sci just you know, comp sci is as broad as psychology is. So there's all sorts of subfields and expertises and 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 such. It's not just like a person who knows programming. Uh, <laughs> you know, you, you specialize, and there's there's yeah. all sorts of comp sci theory and and compartmentalized pieces of knowledge. So, for example, artificial intelligence mostly came out of uh, vision research, trying to understand how computers can better interpret images and videos and such. And so they had a really hard time doing that processing because the data sets are just enormously complex. And so um, – or not artificial intelligence, sorry, deep learning. Uh, the deep learning stuff came out of that vision research because they needed to develop new predictive models that could interpret pictures. And so that's kind of a, a unique problem that they had to solve. So the people on that side, um, which I would, call, I would say is kind of the more technical side, is one general category of computer scientist person. Um, they're the ones uh, who, at least in my experience, generally don't care much for the human side. So that when when you talk about a problem in an organization, it's a it's a mathematical it's it's an engineering problem that they need to solve and nothing more. You then have uh, the the other side, which is um, human computer interaction, which are sort of the behavioral scientists of computer science, who are trying to apply psychology, social science, political science, other social science, other social sciences to computer science type problems. They they tend to be more integrated by default. They're sort of the interdisciplinary wing of computer science. And there's also people outside of CompSci who will identify themselves as being human-computer interaction people. Uh, so it's it's sort of this, this entry point, I think, for psychologists, where like a recent paper that we did on gamification, we actually collaborated with some human-computer interaction people at uh, University of Waterloo. Um, and it's I think it's most useful because they still have the fundamental assumptions and philosophies of computer science. The attention is not to, you know, theories the way that we conceptualize them in psychology. It's usually much more about design and methodologies and, you know, how do you create a system that elicits particular feelings and particular affective experiences for the people that use it. It's just it's a very different kind of mindset in approaching human behavior issues, uh, whether, you know, whether problems to be solved or whether you're trying to improve some aspect of human behavior for a particular goal. Um, they just they approach it from a dramatically different perspective. And I think that's that's possibly the most valuable thing that really integrating with what they do and what they understand is for is for us is for IO. Along those lines, then, as a, as our field starts to change, whether it's keeping up with computer science and all those <laughs> those changes and mm -hmm. changing how we view the field, what do you think we're headed as a field? Are, do you see any changes in publication? I know your blog is sort of kept on top of some of these like membership changes, publication changes, things mm -hmm. along those lines. Yeah, well, it's I mean, there's there's so much changing. <laughs> it's, <laughs> it's hard to. Hard to predict precisely how they'll all interact. I, you know, I think we're seeing on one side of that, I think we're seeing a difference in the marketplace for IO psychologists, whereas historically IO psychology served a pretty narrowly defined set of organizations or types of organizations. Like we were, we were really much more optimized for, you know, huge, you know, fortune 50, fortune 500 type 
I mean, even more toward the 50, like places with 10,000 employees benefit way more historically from IOS psychology than places with 20. That's starting to change a little bit, I think, um, because there's greater awareness of what IOS psychology is and what it potentially brings. And there's also been some, you know, high level news stories, let's say, about people fundamentally misunderstanding their own employees and creating, you know, big problems. Mm -hmm. So as those as that keeps happening, then there's more awareness of, wait, aren't there some experts somewhere that know about employees and what they do and why they do it? And as that happens, we're we're seeing more and more demand for I.O. Uh, I think that's related very strongly to the call for master's level training in I.O. We've seen just an explosion in the number of master's students and people graduating with master's degrees in I.O. over the last decade or so. Um, because you know, there's, there's a growing recognition that someone, we need more people on the ground practicing IO. So there's, there's that piece of it. We're, we're, I mean, we're also seeing changes in terms of, uh, in the, in the broader sense, in terms of where IO is valuable, because once those people go out, they recognize that the core psychology sort of training that we get is not really enough. And, uh, there's this whole business side that we're not really traditionally trained very well in, uh, and there's this uh, this sort of awareness, I think, once people get out in the field, they're like, oh, I, I know what I know. I know my IO psychology piece, but I don't, I don't necessarily connect that to how to be uh, valuable immediately mm-hmm. uh, upon entering a new organization. So they, they suddenly in, enter this big self-development phase. Like every, every master's student that I talked about, they get out in the workforce and they're like, oh, man, I have to figure out how to apply all this stuff. And then they develop their own knowledge and their own understanding of the field in order to figure out, you know, how to actually do that there. And that knowledge, for some reason, never makes its way back really into academia and into the training. Um, so instead, you end up with what we historically have called the, you know, the science practice divide. But now, instead of it being PhDs on either side of the fence, it's now the PhDs in academia versus everyone else. <laughs> so it's uh, it's this sort of growing. Uh, I don't know if it's growing too fast, but it, it is this chasm a bit in terms of priorities and goals. Um, it's actually a big part of my my mission because I, I think that uh, IO psychology's academic IO psychology's kind of focus on um, pure theory development, which is something that's really grown over the last decade, also, uh, or maybe a little longer than that. Where if you look in, you know, like JAP these days, it, to the average person practicing in the field, it's nigh incomprehensible. I mean, it's it's just incredibly deep, complex theories about minutia of human behavior that in most cases are not super useful to a real life human being. I think one part of my mission is to say that IO psychology needs to kind of return to its roots, that we historically, our, our strength has arisen from integrating the science and the practice that in the old days, when you saw people, you know, go out into industry and then come back into academia, that was way more common um, uh, several decades ago. Um, that that integration is something that we're gradually losing our hold of and need to return to really hard. Um, part part of my, you know, the technology interest for me is about that. That I hear from people going out into industry, whether masters or PhD level, and they say suddenly I have to work on the team with data scientists, and I don't even know what they're talking about <laughs> at the time. So really saying, like, here are the real problems that practitioners are facing in the field and then understanding how academia kind of serves those uh, those goals. We're, we're supposed to be, in my mind, and this is, <laughs> this is not meant to be condescending, but I always feel like we're the, the, the medicine uh, for, for practitioners because it's, it's real easy to, to run away with cool ideas and, and do what you think sounds good. But somebody has to be off somewhere saying, wait a minute, there's some research that says otherwise, right? 
But what's happened is that instead academia has kind of gone off in its own direction so that the medicine is no longer relevant to practice. So practitioners are just off on their own, which, you know, they have to be because that's what the job is. But it means that academia is no longer serving practice the way that I think it, it should be for for our field to be successful in kind of the long term. Um, so, yeah, that's that's. That's kind of the, the the broad shape of it. I you know I, the the science practice divide is is something that's really bothered me for a long time, and all these problems are also kind of interrelated. Even the interdisciplinary stuff I was talking about earlier, like you know, it's academia not recognizing how the real world of work is changing, uh, at least as fast as it should, and then just becoming increasingly irrelevant to that real day to day practice. Uh, and I yeah, I think it's a really it's a really severe issue. I was actually just listening to the PSYOP podcast from earlier this year with Fred Oswald and mm. some, some other people as well. I can't remember who else was on the panel, but they were talking about the scientist-practitioner gap, and they sort of collectively were like, it's not a gap, it, there's a bridge, and we all have this bridge within us, and we can work harder to like strengthen this bridge <laughs> yeah. in our field. I think it's like part of the bridge builders initiative as well, which is like a really mm -hmm. interesting perspective, but I think harder to act upon right yeah you know I, I there has to be obviously a willingness so in that sense i i would totally agree with that um whereas if uh you know it for people that are going to grad school and you know, getting their master's or phd and the whole time that they're there like you know i'm just going to get an industry and this degree is just means to an end like that's that's not a healthy perspective for those people um but similarly academics have to be willing to say you know, I we need to serve real problems. We we can't just dig deeper and deeper into our theories, even you know, even if it's good science and even if it's it's true in in some sense. If it's not useful, then it's kind of a waste of time in my perspective. So we we do have to have a willingness to cross that bridge, so to speak. But at the same time, I think fundamentally, we have to be we have to be more integrated within our within ourselves. Uh, like everyone should think of themselves as a scientist practitioner in our field. Like that's the core strength. If you're just going to be a practitioner of human resources, then you should have an MBA in HR. If you're just going to be a theory development person, then you should get a PhD in organizational behavior. Like the core value of IO versus all these other perspectives is the integration. So we need, we need to lean into it. So I was over here silently nodding along <laughs> the entire time. I was like, yes, yes. <laughs> but I want to dig in a little bit deeper into the technological advances and your specific research. One of the areas that the Work Science Center focuses on is technology in the workplace because mm. It's radically changing work, we think. A uh, high-level overview of um, your research and sort of what you think the field has learned, where we're heading in the technology realm. Well, so technology is a real a real weird thing to study in I.O. right now. It's it's getting more normalized, but tech is sort of, uh, sort of a situational constraint on the way that – or enhancer in the way that uh, work is performed. So it, it sort of changes – if you think about your classic like person-situation interaction models, it changes the situation. And historically, psychologists don't really study the situation real well. Um, we really focus on the person, as, as the name psychology would imply. Um, so new, all these new texts are coming out. They're, they all follow the same general kind of pattern. My favorite metaphor for this, uh, a research firm Gartner came out with this concept called the hype cycle. Where you see these new technologies appear, everybody is, you know, rah rah. It's going to change the whole world. Everything's amazing. It's great, and then it crashes at some point later when everybody realizes, oh wait a minute, it's not as useful as we thought it was. And then you have this longer period of productivity afterward related to like, oh okay, well it's it's not going to save the world. It's you know not a it's not a legitimate snake oil. Um, it's also not snake oil. It's instead somewhere in the middle. There's some good uses and there's some bad uses. 
So that's that happens with basically every technology we've studied. Um, I started all of this with virtual worlds. Um, I don't know if you remember, but in 2004, 5-ish, everyone thought everything everywhere was going to be in Second Life, mm-hmm. like mm-hmm. everyone. Uh, Reuters opened up a news office in Second Life, which today sounds insane, uh, but it was that much <laughs> hype, that much enthusiasm, this idea we're all going to live in the metaverse now, everything's going to turn virtual, and uh, and then, of course, people realized, wait a minute, why are we here? There's no real reason to do this, uh, and the popularity died off dramatically. And there's still core Second Life users, but it's not nearly what it was. So we see that pattern with basically every technology that comes out, very small number of exceptions, like the internet. Um, <laughs> so social media is one. So social media for selection purposes, for example, there was a lot of talk about that for a while uh, where the idea was, oh, you don't even need to apply to jobs anymore. We can just harvest information about you from all your social media profiles and just magically we're going to be able to hire the best candidates to every job forever. Uh, and then that and that was the enthusiasm in the tech field. That was not the enthusiasm in I.O. <laughs> that sounds terrifying. <laughs> yeah. That was the idea in the tech area, and so, and then when companies started to try to do that, they discovered, oh, wait a minute, there's all these challenges associated with doing that. It's not going to work as well as we thought it would work. Oh, you know, there's a certain limit to the kind of information you can even get that way, uh, and suddenly it all kind of fizzled down a lot, um, and that was probably five or six years ago, and now we're seeing a little bit of a gain again because artificial intelligence is making some of that a little bit easier uh, to do, so we see that cycle. Um, artificial intelligence itself is probably the one we're stuck in the middle of right now where AI, I mean, AI fundamentally is just really advanced predictive modeling. It is regression that can handle variable sets that we could only dream of before where you could, you know, input a video feed as, as a set of predictors in a regression model. Like that's what AI is. Um, even self-driving cars is really fundamentally just, you know, predict Given the set of inputs, you know, the map, the camera sensors, the navigation that you're trying, you know, the place you're trying to go, wh- what should I do with the brake, the pedal, and the wheel? Like, that's that's it. So it's just predictive modeling, just really advanced and crazy predictive modeling. But because uh, of that complexity, a lot of people sort of attribute to it this kind of magical property <laughs> that it can just solve problems for you. Um, but it can, it can it, you know that somehow we're going to uh, go into these selection systems that, for example, IOs have designed and say, oh, no, 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 you're not using artificial intelligence. If we use artificial intelligence, then it's going to be better. But they won't exactly explain how it's going to be better. Uh, so that's that's kind of what's happening right now. Uh, and we're seeing uh, just an incredible amount of, of enthusiasm for AI without people really understanding what AI is. So we're, we're going to head to a bit of a crash for that. But at the same time, I, I think that that is the future of I.O. in a lot of ways, that our, our approaches, the ones that we traditionally take for, for selection, um, is you know, to identify specific psychological constructs, specific KSAOs that we think are related to job performance based on you know, job analytic evidence or whatever else, uh, whatever inputs you might have, uh, and then you know, develop some psychological measures, administer them over surveys, and then you're done. Uh, the problem with that is that these AI techniques are objectively better at creating predictive models than anything that we have right now, just period. They are optimized toward generalizability. They are optimized toward getting better out-of-sample prediction uh, in ways that our kind of traditional regression approaches, just they just don't work as well, mm-hmm. just at all. 
so as soon as you start getting this complexity area, what that means is that you know the R squareds, the predictive value of what computer scientists can do, is better and will have better predictive validity. It will have better prediction in general uh, of the outcomes that organizations are interested in, and that's that's going to create a problem for us. Now, the the good side for us is that they don't at all understand the legal context of anything they're doing. <laughs> uh, pretty much uh, every comp sci person I've talked to, I've actually consulted with two or three organizations now. When I'm I'm literally having a conversation, you know, no, there there is employment law and it does put some restrictions on what you're doing, uh, and there's just very little awareness because in startup culture, the court of you know move fast and break things mindset, they just don't pay attention to it. It's, it's like, oh, we'll figure that part out later. So where where IO uh, is going to be particularly valuable, I think, is by int would be particularly valuable is by really fully integrating AI as it evolves, by not just being passive users of AI, but to actually work collaboratively or in a true interdisciplinary sense, you know, learn a little computer science to help develop AI that is optimized for the situations that we find ourselves in, um, whether that's you know, whether that's a selection application or whether it's, you know, determining who's going to be, uh, you know, best in your leadership pipeline, you know, whatever application area where you might use a predictive model, uh, we need to be part of that. In, in the same way that psychology was integral to developing psychometrics, to taking statistics and understanding, well, how do statistics play out in terms of human pe humans, in terms of measuring human characteristics? Like we develop psychometrics by being interdisciplinary about statistics. We need to do the same thing with computer science. We have to integrate what they've been doing with artificial intelligence and use that to build an artificial intelligence of human behavior that is, you know, it's more optimized to that context than anything that we can do with just the general tools alone. So, so I think AI is really that's key to, to moving forward here because it has all the characteristics of uh, a technology that's not going to fizzle out uh, in that it's, it's basically just an evolution of what we already have, and yet it is better in distinct contexts uh, than what we're using right now. That's not something like Second Life where you have to make an argument for like, well, why would anyone care? Mm -hmm. Here, you're getting better prediction, period. Like that, that is a, a core goal, so it, it seems like a technology that's going to stick around. Um, so, yeah, I think I think we just have to be uh, we have to be right on the front of that train uh, or else we're we're going to get run over. <laughs> I love it. I'm fired up. I want to start learning AI, which I guess quick question. How do you do that? Do you just like snag a computer scientist and say, teach me or um, how you know, do you know, it's it's again, remember, think of AI as being uh, statistical modeling. Right. So you, you have both uh, what you would call supervised AI, supervised machine learning. Um, which is just regression type things. Uh, and then you have unsupervised learning, which is really just things like cluster analysis or factor analysis or trying to identify categories within existing data. So that means that the struggles of learning AI are actually very similar to the ones in learning stats. You can actually be a practitioner of artificial intelligence with very little expertise. Uh, and a lot of comp sci people that have like bachelor's degrees in computer science who start up their own like uh, sole proprietorships, their own little companies to um, uh, to sell AI services. That's what they're doing they're, They actually are practitioners of AI. They could not explain in a, in a hundred years uh, based on what they have right now, 
uh, how like random forests work or how deep learning works. They don't, they don't know and they don't care to know. All they have to know is how to implement it in the same way that you can go into SPSS and click on the ANOVA button. Like you can use AI the same way without really understanding at all what's underneath it. So that means the challenge is, is very similar. So you, I think it's most useful personally to, to learn to be a practitioner of the technology first in the same way that like in stats, I would say the first thing you should learn is what all the analyses look like and kind of how they function and what the language of statistics is to just trying to learn to, to navigate uh, and, and gain a general familiarity with what it is. And then only after you have that general familiarity and, you know, maybe in your own uh, research, you just instead of using regression, you've, you've used, uh, you know, uh, elastic nets. That's a, it's a relatively from it's a relatively simple thing to change. I can give you an, a, a, a set of code in something like R to do an elastic net in five lines of code. Like it is not oh, it's nice. not like you're sitting there writing thousands of lines of programming. Um, and then only after you have a general kind of comfort with the language and how it works, then try to dive in and try to understand well how does this actually work. In in the same way that you would. Say, for example, you were trying to learn what random forests were, that you would learn how to execute one, which requires only a couple lines of code. And then after you're comfortable with that, um, that you try to learn how they work and try to implement one from the ground up in the same way that when learning stats, you learn how to click the buttons in SPSS first. And then you're like, all right, let me what, what's actually going on behind the hood. Let me learn the formulas. Let me understand what a normal distribution is. Let me understand how all these concepts link together so that you gain that deeper level understanding. Uh, in terms of the practice piece, it's actually really easy. So uh, I have a course, for example, um, that I developed um, at uh, uh, datascience.tntlab.org, which is data science for social scientists, which basically teaches people how to use R. And part of that course, there's just you know a week or one module worth of material on learning how to uh, run AI algorithms. And I don't, you know, I don't explain how they work in that because that would be much more than, you know, an hour video. Um, but rather, I just say, you know, this is this is kind of the language of these things. This is how you um, this is how you execute one. This is how you take a project that you've already done with regression and just replace it with AI, uh, which is not that hard. Uh, and then once people have done that, once you've learned that basic skill set, that's when you can dive in deeper and, you know, get books uh, on the the mechanics of some of these algorithms. There's also a couple articles out. Uh, I think there was a JAP just recently where um, they kind of laid out in in real plain English and kind of a psych friendly audience uh, uh, language, just a paragraph or two about you know what are random forests and what do they do. Uh, you know what is what is elastic net ridge and uh, lasso regression and what do they do. Uh, and really and really kind of demystifies the complexity of those of those analyses. So. So yeah, I, I would start with that kind of high level, just put it into practice and see how it works, see what's the same and see what's different from what you already know. And then at that point say, all right, let me, let me dig in a little deeper now. Thank you so much for your time. I think this is very helpful. Thank you so much.